listening to a download from the outdoorstation.co.uk. Number 341. Hello and welcome back to the Outdoor Station. Well, firstly, I'd like to start by thanking all of the people who have visited the shiny new website, theoutdoorsstation.co.uk, and who have sent encouraging notes, offered feedback, and have viewed a few of our new how-to videos which I've posted. In the last podcast, I mentioned that on the support page, there was a chance to make a donation of your choice to the station, and in return, I'd make you an executive producer for a few podcasts. Well, I'm extremely pleased to announce that our first executive producer is Alan Callow from Aberdeen, who has the honour of supporting us in this special two-part podcast interview with Jasper Wynne, the author of Paddle, A Long Way Around Ireland. Now, I've mentioned several times before, I'm sure, that I'm fascinated by normal people who take it upon themselves to do extraordinary, or at the very least, really, really interesting adventures when it comes to self-powered travels. And Jasper is just one of those people, as he sea-kayaked around Ireland not long ago, and now has released his book, Paddle. The book makes for a great read, as his humour, honesty and questionable sanity is shared openly with the reader, who really gets a true feeling of the spirit of his adventure. This is part one of a two-part series, and Jasper has kindly read excerpts to add to the interview. So, uh, well, kayaking around Ireland, I, mean, I think you can do it two different ways. Um, I took one extreme. Uh, I went round as slowly, not as possible, but as slowly as forced upon me by not really knowing what I was doing and being quite apprehensive about the conditions. I mean, it's the world's 20th largest island. Not huge compared to Greenland, of course, but you know, still quite big compared to uh, any Mediterranean island or compared to Sri Lanka even, for example. So a lot of people have taken that as a challenge. And a lot of people have kayaked around Ireland. It's not that unique. Um, I've been trying to collate how many people have gone around and more and more people pop up quite a few just you know go around and don't tell anybody um but there have been sort of two extremes there have been people who've ambled around quite happily um and enjoyed the experience uh, enjoyed the kayaking stopped off in pubs you know visited islands got distracted by bird watching or whatever that's the camp i'm in but there are the other people who I admire hugely, um, just because they're so alien from what I do, who see the it's a very neat thousand miles around the coast of Ireland. So they see it as a challenge, and uh, yeah, they, they take it on, you know, with all the the, the stuff that, that entails. You know, actually knowing about navigation, knowing about the weather, um, eating properly, not spending night after night in pubs. Um, and the, the record for going around Ireland stood at, I think it was 32 days, um, a guy called Nick O'Mara and a bunch of guys. And these guys are exceptional athletes. They're all endurance kayakers. And they held that record for, um, oh, it must have been, I think, 10 years or so. I spoke to Mick a lot before I went around, and he scared the hell out of me. He was saying, well, you know, when you get to this um, headland, you get to the mizzen head, you don't have to, um, you know, pop through the window of charts and, uh, you know, take on the swell and... Good God, that's how I didn't understand what he was talking about at all. I was just going to wait for a calm day. But anyway, this year, um, which is you know, so several years after I did the trip, I took three and a half months. Two guys looked at the whole thing scientifically and went round in 25 days. I think it was 25 days, 26 days. But it couldn't have been more extreme. I, mean, I think they're, they're really two different um, 
not even two different trips, just two different ways of, of living, in fact. You know, these guys had, um, uh, you know, and obviously one that had already been around himself beforehand in a slightly more relaxed manner. So he knew the way, so to speak. But they had a they had shore team uh, checking the weather all the time for them, and that's critical going around Ireland. Um, you know, I was I listened to the shipping forecast every morning, and um, that was the best I had going for me. But these guys had updates coming from a guy I think based in Israel who was taking satellite readings, and um, I know I read their blog, and it was a bit to me just because it was so alien. From my experience, it fascinated me. They were sitting on, I think it was the, they were on the north face of Clare Island up on the west coast, a place that I got stuck for quite a few days. And uh, there's a force five, six blowing, not great for pushing out into big Atlantic swell. And they got a call on the satellite telephone saying, you know, the wind's going to drop down to about a force four in 20 minutes' time. You're going to have an hour and a half to make it across to Ackle Island, which is about, um, I think, seven or eight miles. And they went, hmm, and they prepared, they had all the kit on, and dropped into the water. And 20 minutes later, the wind dropped, and off they went, and just made it before the wind howled up again. Now, I find that kind of stuff absolutely fascinating, because I could never conceive of it being enjoyable. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's absolutely the opposite of what I've always done, traveling. I mean, I, I sort of define what I do as slow adventure, which is like slow food or slow travel, it's really just um, having lots of time to, to see how things develop. The tent skin is cracking above me amid a pelleting of raindrops. Outside it's grey, and there's a sharp wind blowing, and waves, chested drawers high, are exploding against the cliffs. I doze until the shipping forecast. Neither Fastnet nor Shannon, it seems, are expecting particularly poor weather. But that's according to a woman sitting in a warm studio in the heart of Broadcasting House in the centre of London. On Cahamore, it looks like a shite day. I eat a cold breakfast of oats and milk powder and a dribble of honey mixed with cold water. And I drink tepid tea made from the previous night's thermos flask. This willingness to enjoy a less than gourmet experience allows me the luxury of breakfast in bed. I launch through the surf, waves running over the top of the kayak. It's not their height that's the problem, but the wind which is blowing the waves at an angle of 45 degrees across the swell, turning the surface into a cross-hatching of texture so that the kayak twists and rolls under me. A couple of hours, and I'll be on the far side of the headland, past Dursey Island, and able to land in Alihies. But the seas out here are bigger, far bigger than I'd like. There's a driving rain that needles my eyes when I look over my shoulder, and my resolve is ebbing away. The unbroken line of cliff face where the land meets the water offers no escape, and so provides both the fear that makes me want to stop and the reason I have to keep going. I'm like a mouse scampering along the edge of a high black skirting board with no hole to dive into, except that I see a small, mouse-sized chasm running as a narrow, deep bite back into the rocks. I paddle cautiously towards the inlet's entrance. The swell picks up the kayak, up like the flotsam, indeed like the other flotsam, logs, a booming empty 45-gallon drum, rafts of seaweed that rush past me heading inshore. I have to paddle backwards, hard, to keep from being dragged along by the churning water. Some of the waves are breaking in great rushes of surf. I've lost my nerve here, too. I don't want to keep going along the coast, 
And now I don't have the guts to dive into what looks like a maelstrom of foam, spray, and big blocks of water crashing against the rocks at the back of this tiny bay. But then I notice sets of waves running more smoothly into the right-hand corner. The sluicing rain makes it almost impossible to see anything clearly, but there seems to be a key. And perhaps what looks like a boat moored in a pool of what must be calm, well, calmer water. I'd prefer a short burst of high risk now than a longer period of lower, slightly lower risk over the coming hours. I want to be on shore, and quickly. I get my wish. Launching myself into the huge mounds of water driving inwards, I'm picked up by the waves. The kayak becomes a toboggan, rushing as if downhill through powder snow, bouncing over aquatic moguls, skidding and slowing, but incredibly staying upright. In the far corner, protected by a rock buttress, thank Christ, the sea quite miraculously calms. The moored boat barely bobbed in a creek of water behind a high quay. I come to a halt looking down through the rain-spattered surface at seaweed fronds two and three metres down in crystal-clear waters, just swaying in the current. It takes me a long time to pull the kayak up the almost vertical slope of the slip, using a rope as a handhold, as if climbing a rock face whilst pulling a dead body behind me. The rain has become even heavier, and there's no let-up in sight. I'm soaked and cold on a remote quay at the end of an unpaved borine, without even a few square metres of flat ground to put up the tent and there's no shelter of any kind in sight. The adrenaline rush of the paddle in and the relief of landing turns to frustration and misery. Sod it. I've had it. It's uh, enough to bloody nut. This is just stu stu stupid. Shite where the bastard sees sodding stupid. I'm almost inarticulate. I keep up a steady mumble and the odd shout of self and general loathing as I peel off my wetsuit and bundle it and nearly everything else back into the kayak, which I lay in a ditch, itself running with water. If anyone wants it, if anybody wants this, they can have it, the whole lot. It's, it's grabs. First person, whoever, what, I'm out. I'm gone. I'm out of here. I liked your I liked your description where you said um, rambling by kayak. Oh, I think um, sea kayaking is very um, very similar to to foot travel. I mean, I would actually say that it, it probably um, it's almost exactly the same as climbing um, and, and wandering around in mountains. You can have a ramble, um, which is what I was doing. I rambled around Ireland, paddle rambled, paddle paddle walked. But you can also take on sea kayaking um, in the same way that big wall climbers take on mountains. Um, guys who, uh, well, the three people I know of have kayaked across the Atlantic. One back in the 1930s, then uh, Hans Lindemann in uh, the 1950s. He, uh, he, he got across the Atlantic. I think it may have taken him about, um, oh, it's well, it might have been 40 days or so, in the 50s. So he was dressed in, in woolen um, clothing and, uh, and a bit of, sort of oil skin. Uh, he went in a, in a straightforward clepper folding kayak, wooden canvas job. And his, his way of getting through was um, voodoo mind control, which he'd been studying in Haiti, and a diet of beer and oatmeal. And now this guy was inspirational to me because whenever things got really tough, and quite, a, quite often I was well offshore, I'd have been on average two or three miles offshore the whole way around Ireland, and quite often eight, nine or ten miles offshore. And, you know, the wind gets up. That's, you know, that's eight, ten miles means five or six hours paddling. 
that's enough time for things to change, the tide to change, the weather to change, basically to get out of my depth, so mm. to speak, and uh, to find myself in trouble. I just think of you know, Hans Lindemann, you know, for the first two weeks, he couldn't sit down in his canoe because he had so much food stuffed around him in the cockpit. He had to sort of eat his way down to a point where he could actually lie down. And he took the northern route. So he was way out in the Atlantic going up towards Greenland, and he got knocked over in a storm, got back in, and was so cold with wind chill that he decided to get back into the water and hang off the side of the canoe for the next two and a half days. <laughs> now, that's the kind of thing I find absolutely uplifting because there was no technology involved. It was a very low-key... Um, yeah, it was. It was. He was down to him and his willpower, and that's the kind of touchstone that I like. You know, I kind of think, okay. I've got to ask you something, actually. You know, it sounds like you're very similar to me. Do you think? Do you think the modern day technology and the support teams and the satellite navigation and all this is taking all the fun out of it, the fun and adventure out of travel? It's making. I wouldn't say. I can't say it's making it safe, but it's making it a bit sterile. I, it's, a, it's a very difficult question, this one, because I mean, once something's been invented, you can't uninvent it. And in my case, I just decided not to know how to use a GPS. So I didn't take one. Uh, and I, w- I was using fairly basic stuff, mainly because I've been brought up with compasses and maps rather than GPSs. So I've got all those skills. I don't want to lose them. But I think what it probably has done, it um, when when people now have to up the ante to keep up the technology. And I think that's why we're getting many, many more people who are setting fairly, fairly abstract um, competitions for themselves. You know, it's no longer good enough just to climb up a mountain. You've now got to climb it up, climb up it, you know, and take pictures on the top or climb up it with a film crew or climb up it and, um, and you know, uh, paraglide off the top of it. Or people, I think even more extreme, just go for speed records now. You know, it's no longer... Um, well, I, I remember I, I did a tetrathlon length of Ireland back in the, ooh, must have been the 80s because the River Shannon is exactly one-third of uh, Ireland's length running north to south. So I kayaked um, down the River Shannon rather than swimming, being a bit of a whim. But I remember doing that trip and thinking, this should catch on with people. Um, so I, I, I cycled down from the top of Malin Head um, the first hundred miles or so, jumped out, climbed into a canoe, canoed down the Shannon or through Lockery and Lockderg, got out at uh, at Limerick, and then ran the last bit down to uh, the tip of the Mizzenhead, so the whole full length of Ireland. But it took me absolutely days to do it, and I thought that at the time people would sort of see that as a challenge, and um, and kind of go, well, we can certainly beat that down. And I think I took about. Uh, six, seven, I think it was about eight days, um, carrying all my stuff around. At the time, there was no interest in, in anybody else doing it at all. They just thought I was mad. Every newspaper that, uh, that interviewed me just went, you know, we found another madman. You know, here's a, here's a you, know, you know, chicken falls over a cliff, man bites dog kind of story. Now, in Ireland specifically, adventure racing has caught on to such an extent. And you'd think that I'd be a shoo-in for adventure racing. I can't work the technology. <laughs> I can't even get I can't even get the feeding right. I mean, I, I was talking to one of Ireland's premier endurance runners the other night at a party, and uh, he was saying, you know, he got he said, look, I got into this thing because I'm a nerd. I just really like you know counting calories and splitting seconds. Um, he said basically, you know, adventure running or long distance running, endurance running, is an eating competition with a bit of running thrown in. 
Hmm. And he says, you know, unless you know how all this stuff works, you can't compete at that, the, the level that we do. And I kind of go, you're absolutely right, I can't. But is it is it better for you, though, do you think? Is it Does it, you know, develop your own personal... Um, your personal ethos and life in a better way to be this this speedier, lighter, um, whip it like individual, or are are you better as a as an individual, a world person, a resident of the world, to be someone who understands their surroundings more and is at, at, at one with it and 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 nurtures the art of balancing your in, with your environment? Again, that's a. It's, mm, it's a, it's a Good question, because I don't have an immediate answer for it. You're making me think about things which are difficult to articulate. Because, I mean, I know myself, I think it's all individuals. And I know myself that some things I have um, ad- adapted. Sorry, I, I've, there are some things that I have um, embraced, some you know, new bits of technology. I love titanium. You know, a titanium pot or a titanium spoon, to me, is a piece of absolute joy. It's much better than a plastic mug or a... You know, one of those old bendy aluminium spoons. And that's new technology for us ultralighters. Um, and so, I've, you know, I think I've owned my own um, past. I've set my own records. But I always compromise them by being easily distracted by parties and pubs and playing music on the way. Well, I must admit, if the, in the book itself, you, you, I think you strike a very, very happy medium between um, enjoying the trip uh, for in the sake of kayaking around Ireland, um, in embracing the the characters and the local lifestyle that, um, in some cases, by weather is forced upon you, as it were, that you have to stay for longer in a certain place, which I happen to know was a pub on more than one occasion, um, and uh, achieving your goal. Which I love the way that you you sort of start the book saying, well, basically you're, you're going to treat it as a day a day trip and uh, try and get a bit further than than your previous attempt where you had a, um, a, an illness come upon you. Uh, and every day seems to, every section seems to be more of a surprise to you that you've actually got that far. Um, but at the same time, enjoying your your ability to um, to put over to the reader your the pleasure that you're getting from it is is I think it's wonderful. It's truly uh, truly inspirational read from from that point of view. It's very much uh, inspirational from from uh, in, the art of enjoying the art of travel, really, no matter the format. But what I'd like to do is um, obviously we're talking about the paddle around Ireland or paddle the long way around Ireland, the book. But to give people perhaps a bit of an idea about um, your background, because it's sort of fairly eclectic, really, in, in your interests with um, with travel and horses and, and your, your childhood. Perhaps you could sort of sum that up for people to give you to give us more of a flavour of the person who actually got into that canoe before they they left and set out on this journey. Gosh, a quick, uh, quick biog. Yes. Um, well, I think I was uh, I think two things were seminal to why I've ended up doing what I do, which is. A, pretty much a constant life of slow traveling, slow adventure. And that is, I was brought up in, uh, I was born in England, but I was brought up in West Cork in Ireland uh, in the 60s. And that was an interesting time. It was still quite a quite a remote area. Um, it sounds daft to say that now because Ireland's been through so many changes so quickly in the last 20, 30 years. But there was a real sense of adventure coming from, uh, from, well, rural England, but you know, it was rural Oxfordshire, which is basically a very large garden with some hedges, uh, to the west of Ireland, just on the on the very edge of uh, West West Cork. And it, just at the right time in my life, I was seven years old, and it was just like, 
yeehaw, you know, a dog and a stick and, and off you go. There's woods and there's the coast and there's streams. And my parents were very, they were busy doing other things really. So they didn't, um, as long as I came back at night, uh, they were fairly happy. And I upped the ante entirely by, I was sent to boarding school, which um, had one huge disadvantage. It was full of small boys, uh, which I disliked intensely being one myself. Uh, I much preferred animals. So I left that school and uh, was sent to a slightly more, um, uh, well, in this sort of oddball kind of, you know, um, pick up um, pick up children who don't like school type of places, a sort of you know, real jeans and jumper place. Didn't like that one either. Uh, so I left school forever at 10 years old, uh, which you could do in West Cork in those days, apparently. Um, and my parents said, okay, you can come back home. Uh, we lived in the country, and there was a lot going on at home. We had quite a lot of land. We had horses. My father was an inventor um, and quite an eccentric himself. Uh, so they said, well, you can come home, but you can't just um, just hang around. You've got, to, you've got to do something. So I just spent the next um, seven, eight years of my life doing stuff. So riding horses, learning to play the guitar, writing, reading. No television, which was great. Um, listening to the radio. Uh, and a lot of the time, just out in the woods and out along the coast, bird watching. Um, it's a slightly sort of a kind of mix of you know Gerald Dull's childhood with animals all over the place, and owls and kestrels and merlins and lizards and so on and so forth. Um, and books. And books were the real, um, the real catalyst. We had a, a large library of of very eclectic books. Um, you know, everything from natural history through to adventure, through to how to build a steam organ. Um, and so I read my way through the bookshelves, so pretty much in chronological order, uh, from left to right, starting at the bottom and working my, my way up. And of course, found all the travel books. You know, a lot of those sort of early travellers setting off with nothing much more than a stout pair of boots and an ice axe. And I kind of thought, ah, okay, that, that's that's what one can do in life: go travelling. And then I read. Woody Guthrie is bound for glory. And Woody Guthrie, great folk singer, um, wrote about the Depression, uh, put all this into song. But he, he gave me a clue. He apparently just traveled everywhere through America, playing his guitar, welcomed wherever he went, living a life of romance and having quite a number of romances. Ha, ah, this is it. So 60, guitar, and off I went to Spain, um, neglecting really to learn how to play the guitar well. Um, <laughs> Sleeping bag, 40 old Irish pounds I had in my pocket, most of which I'd lost by the time I got to London and lost and spent on, uh, on food and transport and hitchhiking here and buying a drink there and buying new food. So then I just hitchhiked down through France, then through Spain, um, ended up in Andalusia, stayed there for a month or two. Uh, a real sort of, you know, Laurie Lee living off one's wits, living off playing music. Not really very outdoorsy. I mean, a lot of hitchhiking, a lot of walking on dusty roads. Um, and that was the pattern for the next five years or so. I played a lot of music, traveled all over the place, spent much more time in bars and, uh, and clubs and on the streets and staying up late. And I probably kind of might have kept doing that for a long time, but I just suddenly got very tired of cities. So I began doing long walks. And uh, so walked across a large part of Spain, walked across most of England and Wales at one point, walked around large bits of Ireland. Um, and it suddenly rose, in fact, I actually liked the walking and the traveling without the guitar playing, at which point the collective population of Europe 
applauded me for giving up and uh, <laughs> and, and stopping uh, stopping playing. How did how did you travel when you were walking then? I mean, were you living very very humbly, sleeping under hedges type of thing, or hitchhiking, or bumming lifts, or, or what? Uh, I hitchhiked a lot. I mean, hitchhiking was the Ryanair of of the eighties. <laughs> it was I mean, so you, actually, yeah. except it was cheaper. The uh, the cabin staff were nicer, and you could carry a lot more <laughs> the luggage. Accommodation was better. <laughs> well, it was, and that was the great thing. One ended up meeting fantastic people, and and things happened hitchhiking. And I would have hitchhiked. Uh, regularly up from Spain back to Ireland, up to up to the Arctic Circle, well into the East Block. Um, it's just it's, it's wonderful kind of realization that one could go anywhere, and as long as one had a sleeping bag, and was prepared to eat pretty much anything, and had a good pair of um, of, of boots, one could just keep traveling and traveling and traveling. And that would have been that was I think a fine and wonderful thing to do as a teenager. Um, obviously, it couldn't go on forever. Uh, I tried to push it that way. Um, then I got into in, this is a bit. This is why I was a bit hesitant when you said, you know, what do I think about you know all these record breakers and people who sort of see the the world as a, an arena for their own personal challenges? Well, I got exactly into that kind of thing for about four or five years, and I sort of just you know, no desert too wide not to be cycled across, no uh, no mountain too high to go scrambling about on. So in quite quick succession, I kayaked, um, kayaked from Dublin to the Mediterranean, not the sea bits, but I kayaked across Ireland, ferry, across England, ferry, down through France. That went well. And then I bought a bicycle and uh, I pedaled across the Sahara Desert uh, twice. The reason being that once I got across, I hadn't thought about how to get back. <laughs> uh, so having got right down to the south of Algeria, to the Niger border, uh, and celebrated. I sort of jumped up and down and went, woohoo, you know, across the Sahara Desert, fantastic. And I then, that, that awful penny drop, I was going to have to cycle most of the way back. I got a bit of a lift with a truck at one point. Uh, so it took me a long time to get across the Sahara. It took me almost, almost no time at all to get back. Again, I rather knew the way, so that, that helped a bit. I followed my entire tracks most of the way. Then I went, uh, then, then I uh, kayaked down the Danube. Now that was interesting because it suddenly, that was a sort of a quasi, um, it was an adventure trip. I mean, the, the Danube's a long river, 2,000 kilometers. We went from the source to the sea, uh, a friend and I, in a, in a bowling kayak we bought in a toy shop in Germany. Uh, but it was much more about the people we met. We'd gone behind the Iron Curtain, so we came out of, uh, out of Austria into Bratislava, into, the, uh, into Czechoslovakia, as it was then. And suddenly we were into this wonderful world of uh, this grey and green world of intrigue and visas and not having visas, being arrested and, uh, and, and meeting people who had an intimate knowledge of the Beatles lyrics, but no knowledge at all of, uh, of uh, Western politics. Again, the guitar helped with a guitar stashed in the, in the, in the canoe. Um, and that's, I think, when I began thinking, OK, maybe just going as fast as possible. Isn't the isn't the key to fun traveling, uh, adventure traveling? Uh, that took a long time to get right through to the the Black Sea, and once again, having got there, uh, you know, whoa, we've reached the Black Sea. Um, the other guy, David, had, had dropped out to go and meet a girlfriend in in Greece. Wise chap. Um, so I finished the whole thing on my own, and then of course got to the Black Sea in in Romania in Chernovoda, and thought, hang on, I've got to get back from here again. Now carrying. A folding but not very light canoe. 
so there was that kind of thing for a while. I was doing a lot of those. Um, it was the time of daft trips. You know, everybody was doing you know pogo across the Andes, trained frog chariot across the Sahara. And I just joined in with the general. Well, I, I certainly remember those times and, and, and remember uh, various stories I picked up from, ver- uh, from people I've met over the years that, that celebrated it or didn't realise at the time you were celebrating that sort of lifestyle. But um, I, I, it's the same sort of, not, not the same sort of youth, but I'm aware of it, shall we say, at as, as, uh, the same time you were doing this. But I mean, the, the immediate question that would come to most people's mind is how, I, I appreciate it was on a shoestring, but how on earth were you able to afford all these um, ir- random trips? Well, I don't know if I've sat down and done any um, maths about the cost of living now. It's how could I not afford to travel? And I've, I remember the first thing, the normal thing in Ireland was when you hit 17, you get a car. Obviously, you need a car to be able to get from A to B. I've never owned a car in my life. And that's probably given me sort of 20 years of free living, not trying to keep a car on the road. And I'm prepared to cycle, walk, um, hire cars, whatever, but not to actually own a car, not to have to look after the wretched thing and, and pay all the, 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 the stuff that goes with it. And I'm also quite happy to work. Um, and even now, I'll quite often end up in places working for, basically working for food, but for the experience of doing something. I spent last year, six months in Patagonia, working with horses, breaking horses, which I know how to do, but it's very difficult to put a price on it. Um, I think if I kind of gone and said, look, you know, my, my rate for breaking horses is you know, 20, uh, 20 quid an hour, people kind of go, oh, well, no. Well, I said, well, look, you know, I'll just hang around and break any horses you've got. And, um, you know, as long as you keep me fed and there's a place to sleep, I'll be happy. I spent six of the most wonderful months of my life on an estancia in Argentina, living exactly the kind of life that paying customers were paying to do for a week at a time. And I was doing it all for the experience. And I, I'm quite good at making that kind of um, I suppose, you know, seeing things in those economic terms. Sometimes money is a lousy medium for for paying for things. Sometimes just getting up and doing something is the quickest and easiest way. It's only the quickest way to make to make friends and, and um, you know, contacts and, and ingratiate yourself with a society, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, food is relatively cheap. I mean, arguably far too cheap in relation to everything else. Um, and that's, that's pretty much all one needs. Um, yeah, I do like having you know, the, the security of having a sleeping bag with me so I can, I can throw it down if I have to. And I do like a bit of luxury every now and again. I mean, I, I, as a travel writer, I, my life sort of does that thing. I think Patrick Lee Fermer called it you know, social, social aqualunging and social ballooning. You know, I could be in a castle being fated one night because I'm on a, on a trip and writing about it for a magazine. And I could be sleeping in a bus, a bus shelter the next night because I forgot to organize anything for the second night and i enjoy in life those those extremes those uh, you know i think good food tastes even better if you had lousy food the night before or no food the night before. i've come in behind a fold in the cliffs and the wind has been shuttered down I'm in a relative calm, and I ease up on paddling for a quick glance at the chart in its waterproof see-through cover. In less than a mile, I'll reach Pig Island. I can see its bulk ahead, almost joined to the land, and just beyond there is a possible landing place. I have the feeling of being watched, though, 
a sense I've come to acknowledge as the paddling days have run by. Usually I find I can scan the cliffs and spot a tiny figure, a fox, a gannet, a raven, almost hidden on a cliff face, looking down on the yellow dot that is me and on former. I scan the cliffs here. They're rain-soused slabs of sheer black rock. Not a sheep nor a person in sight. Out at sea, there's not even a gull in this wind. Then I twist round to look behind me, and my heart leaps. Just at the back of the kayak, fin out of the water, is a large dolphin. Fungi-sized, swimming only two or three metres back from the rudder, following in my exact path. I feel a sense of companionship. I'm not being so much watched as accompanied. Stories of dolphins rescuing people or guiding lost ships into port are as old as the Greek myth where the poet Arian throws himself off a pirate boat rather than remain captive and is carried to land by a dolphin. Dolphins are mammals. They're nearly us. I turn forward again. I can't afford to remain unbalanced in these waters. And then a freezing, spine-tingling jolt hits me. Dolphins and whales have horizontal tail flukes. Fish tails are vertical. The dolphin behind me, I realize, had a tail fin sticking up. This changes everything, and considerably for the worse. I'm being followed by a shark. Only a few feet behind me, and almost the length of the kayak. And sharks and mankind don't have nearly so cuddly a shared history as dolphins and us. I've already used up all my adrenaline and fear in kayaking through these waters, been thrown around by seas that could roll me in a second's inattention. And the shark is an element I find myself considering with a surprising calm. I twist around again. Maybe it's a young basking shark. It's still there, closer now, and I can clearly see its head. Not with the pointed Pinocchio nose of a basker, but ending in the rounded nose of a shark kind of shark. I note how little effort it needs to keep up with my wind-assisted five knots or so. How long, I wonder, has it been behind me before I noticed? I take another look around, and that rounded nose is now only a meter from the stern of the kayak. Five or six feet back is a thick, dark dorsal fin, and further back still, another seven feet, the tip of the tail moving lazily, powerfully from side to side. I face forward again. I can hear the roar of surf against the wall of cliff, and behind me the wind whistling around the buttress of rock. I can smell my own damp skin. I can feel the waves roiling under the kayak. I know one thing very clearly. I must not capsize. Keeping careful balance, I slow the kayak to a wallowing halt and use the paddles for support strokes. Looking around for a fourth time, I see the shark drive down out of sight to one side of me. A few seconds later, its fin surfaces tens of meters away. The speed, added to that blunt nose, rules out a basking shark. I'm now in a smallish area of sea with a large shark that has been quite obviously following me and is now no longer in sight. I begin paddling onwards, keeping close to the cliffside, and I scan the waters around me. I'm still being challenged by the waves and the wind, but my senses are relaxed. By the time I pass Pig Island, I've seen many places I could have made a forced exit. But I realize that, bizarrely, the shark hasn't scared me. I felt the sense of privileged excitement that comes from seeing something big and dangerous, a lion perhaps, in its natural habitat, and realizing that its danger is not directed at you. Or not on this day. I've kept paddling. How did you get into the writing? 
Uh, that was a default. I mean, the, the guitar playing was working okay, but obviously I didn't have a great talent for music. Um, and I was lucky. I, I, it was that period when there were a lot of magazines around trying to fill space with um, this new phenomena of adventure travel. And there weren't many of us doing it. And I think in the 80s I would have known all the, all the, uh, the, the household names as they are now, something like Nick Crane, who's gone to you know, great things. But you know, he was originally shooting up mountains on mountain bikes and running to the center of the earth and uh, hopping along the Himalayas. Um, with Josie Drew, she was cycling all over the place and still is. Um, Gosh, I don't know, all these people I seem to remember now from the 80s. Most of who I <coughs> note have turned their, um, their wanderlust and their adventure ability into a proper fine upstanding career, which I've obviously failed to do in a meaningful way. But there was a market for those kind of stories. Just the mere fact that one had cycled around the, uh, the coast of Iceland meant you got published. It was a great way of learning. I mean, you didn't even have to write very well. Um, you know, just the story was enough. And so that was my apprenticeship for writing. And suddenly I realized, actually, this is a, this is a way to keep traveling. It's sort of like busking with a guitar, but uh, not quite so noisy. I mean, what, what, what's, um, what is your... Uh, this, like any other um, uh, source of income, can sometimes you can get um, embroiled in carrying far too, far too much technology. Are you a, a notepad and a, a pen man, or are you a sort of a laptop, uh, digital camera, all the various attachments that you need to make the full story complete? It's, uh, that's re again a really good question because one sort of one does get caught up in taking lots of stuff. So you know, I used to make radio programs. I'd have a Sony Pro that's fairly heavy, batteries, cassettes to go with that. Then it was you know slide uh, slide film time. So an SLR, SLR camera, four or five lenses, you know, another sixty rolls of film. Awful stuff because it's, it's not what I'd like to do. And then of course once you're carrying that much weight. You think, well, it's not a, not a big hardship to throw in a, you know, a couple of extra shirts. And if you've got a couple of extra shirts, you might as well have a pair of spare trousers in case you get some. You know, and it builds from that really quickly. I think what I've always enjoyed about doing longer trips is that I'm not one of those people who's got – I think you can tell at this point. I'm not one of those people who can plan ahead and say, right, I'm going to be carrying you know, two and a half kilos for the next six months and you know, by using – ultra-modern materials and doing without this and doing without that. I shall just stick with that. No, I'm the kind of guy who kind of goes, I think I'll take seven books with me because I'll get bored of my own company. And what I like about doing long trips is that that imposes, you know, stuff breaks and you discard it or you leave it behind somewhere. And by the end, you are traveling that, in that sort of way, which I think we all want, you know, which is in utmost simplicity um, and traveling light. There's, there's certainly a, an ethos <clears throat> with the Travelling Light um, uh, Brigade, I suppose, or people are becoming aware of, of, of that particular process, is that you've... I, I think you're also interesting you're saying about um, the stages you go through at different different ages in sort of your 20s and 30s. It's all about extremes and quick and, and, and wanting to be the fastest, whatever. Um, but as you start to get a bit, uh, a bit older, you realize that the, the joy is in the journey as opposed to the, the, how quickly you arrive at the, at the destination. Um, and the, the whole lightweight um, philosophy, which has been sort of banded around in every industry, be it kayaking or, or um, uh, sort of outdoor walking. Actually, one area that hasn't really hit is horse riding, but we'll come on to that. Mm -hmm. um, 
is um is there's there's two approaches there's the there's the technical appreciation of the lack of weight attached to titanium and as you say the modern pertexes and and event fabrics and so on and the the uh, service that it provides but also there's the other aspect of actually questioning the reason that you're carrying that particular item whatever that item may be and and as you say questioning does it give you joy does it give you pleasure are you prepared to uh, take it for that reason rather than gram counting on on the actual weight of the item itself i think you're totally right and there's some uh, again that's why i like doing long trips because you suddenly realize which kit is really important to one and i think you you can judge that importance by so many things i carry some stuff for purely sentimental reasons it's not the best it's not the lightest i just like it you know, I've got bits of clothing which I could certainly improve on, but I've just got used to having them along. And uh, you know, on a long trip, uh, and you know, I spent a lot of time abroad every year, months and months at a time. Uh, having one's home with one, and you know, home is just familiar things, I and mean, it's a definition of home. It's just familiarity. So uh, there are yes, things I've always carried for just because I, they, they're mine, I'm used to them. And there is some stuff which I think just works really well. I mean, you, we've talked about um, wood-burning stoves in the past, and I think that's you know, an amazing new development. Um, it's an amazing return to what seems obvious and has been around, obviously, for, for millennia, which is just actually much easier having a small little, uh, little wood fire or uh, a solid fuel stove along with you than something really complicated that you need to find fuel for in, in places where the fuel might not exist. So I love that kind of simplicity, you know, the, 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 the back to you know, basic principles. You, um, in the, uh, the book, The, the Paddle, you, you took um, is it a Kelly kettle you took with you? I took a Kelly kettle, yeah. And, and, and I read somewhere else, uh, a blog post I think you, you posted, uh, coming back to the wood stoves, that you'd, I uh, think, something like the, the, the latter half of the trip, um, you, be, you became very attached to the whole principle of the, the organic matter, um, particularly, I suppose, with, obviously, driftwood was fairly av- uh, available to you. But um, the pleasures associated with with that style of cooking and heating and, and having it as a as a central hearth for you. Yeah, that was a real revelation actually, because I'd always, I'm always, you know, I've always been a keen firelighter you know, from early early teenage years. We were all pyromaniacs then, <laughs> and uh, but yeah, bit by bit, you, you take on the received wisdom, you know, that that other stoves are better. So I've had everything. I had when I did the the Danube trip. I brought this wonderful East European um, pressure petrol cooker, which I called, Mol- uh, called Molly, short for Molotov cocktail, because it was, um, it was sturdily built but not very well built, and it used to leak petrol vapor from bits which it shouldn't have done, and occasionally it would just, it would just blow up into this huge, great ball of flame, and we'd all retreat you know, about 100 meters away and watch and see if it was going to explode that time. Then I, you know, I think for the well for the kayak trip around Ireland, so that's you know twenty years later, um, I bought an absolute top of the range uh, petrol stove, you know, one with sort of you know, fancy pumps and ultra light and stuff. Well, I'm sorry, it didn't last. Um, it just couldn't couldn't stand the you know, the salt water and the dodgy petrol with water in the petrol and the fact that it was going to be um, shoved up the front of the kayak. And it, it was temperamental, then it was um, sick, then it was dead. And that's when I got the Kelly Kettle, because I thought, well, at least I can have um, hot water. 
And that was the revelation. I said, hang on a second, this is just really straightforward. And the Kelly kettle, as you know, is, is really for boiling water. But that little fire pan in the bottom uh, works just as well as a, as a fire pan. So I began cooking on that as well. And so the, ho- the whole final part of the trip, the last 500 miles, I only cooked using the Kelly kettle and, the, and, and natural wood. And I thought, pennies dropped. Yeah, that's, that's a good bit of kit. That's all you need. It's, it's, it's not quite the same because you can't light fires everywhere nowadays. People get you know, upset about it. Well, we just basically, there's, there's more of us out there. Um, so we can't all light fires. Certainly can't all light huge, great fires like people do. But a little, little wood-burning uh, stove. So I've got this little Vargo. Um, which is a lovely video. I got it from uh, from uh, from you, and it works absolutely fantastically. And people love it. And what I like about it is it's real fire. I mean, you've got to tend it. You can burn your fingers on it. Uh, it can go out. You 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 learn about combustion. You become an expert. It's a skill. And I think the joy of of of, of life is to learn skills. It's something satisfying about yeah, knowing the right knot to tie, or how to keep a fire going, or how to light a fire with a, a flint and steel, or how to make a tent out of a tarpaulin and some bits of string. These are skills, and they're by far the most rewarding thing, in my view, rather than having a piece of kit that does it all for you. How much you know, better to have something very simple and to be able to adapt it and use it in lots of different ways. There's there's a remarkable amount of, of pleasure, and in fact, uh, you know, I've got my foot in both camps, obviously, but certainly as more technology comes out, uh, uh, the day spent in front of a computer doing something which is constructive as a, as a result, you know, at the end of the day, you will have, it, it's a contribution to your work. Uh, I find the pleasure level cons- considerably less than going out and playing with uh, a few bits of string, a piece of wood and some tarps. It's, uh, and as you say, lighting a little fire at the end of the day going, well, I can at least I have a cup of tea now and it hasn't really cost me anything. Um, and the more the technology takes over my life, the more I actually appreciate the latter. I think, I know you're absolutely right. And it's, I, I, I think that, I think that as, you know, as, as new um, technology, as a new technology society, what we're really dealing with now is how we divide our time. And I think it's why the things like going off in, and wild camping or, or sea kayaking or endurance running are so much more popular now than they used to be. And I think that's people getting their, their work-life balance right. I, mean, I think it's an applaudable thing that uh, you know, everybody moans about you know, kids spend all their time sitting on the sofa watching television. Well, some kids might do. But I actually see a lot more people out doing stuff. Uh, I mean, to, to, it's my detriment. You know, I hate it because I can't sell stories in the same way anymore. Because it's not a strange and unique thing to do to go off and, and pitch a tarp up under a, a, an overhang up on a mountainside and spend a couple of days up there just catching fish and, and eating oatmeal. Lots of people are doing that now you know, at all different levels. And I think the, the new technology, on the plus side, is a great resource for, um, for, for getting in touch with people and seeing what other people are doing. And there's a lot of skills-based stuff on the, on the internet, which I'm, I'm certainly a, you know, a, a, a junkie for. You know, I can spend hours looking at YouTube videos of somebody making a mess putting up a tarp or somebody doing it really well. Um, you know, I do quite a lot of uh, work with axes and, uh, and saws doing uh, lumberjacking and, uh, and tree work for people. I can spend hours on the tube watching people making a mess of chopping a tree down and putting it through their roof. Um, but I can also spend a lot of time, you know, watching somebody sharpening an axe properly and kind of going, hmm, 
he's better at than I am. I, I could learn from that. I do learn from that. So I think we're all just we're all struggling to uh, to work out how to apportion our time and how to get the best out of both. I'm sure you enjoyed this interview and part two will be along very shortly. My thanks to Jasper for taking the time to join me. Incidentally, all the music you hear on this podcast has been produced and played by Jasper himself. The book Paddle is published by Profile Books and there's a direct link to purchase it on the Outdoors Station webpage. Do make sure you pop along. Well, that leaves me just to say that I'm Bob Cartwright and the executive producer for this two-part series is Alan Callow. Until next time, folks, keep dreaming about your next adventure. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To hear more from our extensive free library, please visit the website at theoutdoorstation.co.uk. You can now follow The Outdoor Station on Facebook, where we chat about each program we produce, answer questions, and discuss future productions. Why not join us there? This podcast is produced and hosted by theoutdoorstation.co.uk.